As you've heard a couple of times this morning, we are preaching our way through the book of Ephesians, which is uh, one of Paul's letters to a number of churches that he served as an apostle. And Paul would write these letters uh, because he couldn't get to the places very easily. Obviously, transport was a challenge in those days. And so he would write to them, and then these letters would be read out to the church. And often the letters would then go on to another church, and they would get that church's letter. So like a round-robin kind of letter, which is how these communications would have happened. And of course, we then uh, get the benefit of that now. And this one's called uh, Ephesians, written to a church in Ephesus. And uh, we've started a few weeks ago, and what we're looking at is Paul uh, describing what Jesus has done, and he is reaching the moment where he's describing what is the gospel. I thought that was superb. What uh, was it, Mark? What was just what Pete was? What Pete? What you shared? That's in my. It's in my sermons day. It's always very reassuring when someone shares something that you prepared to preach when they don't know about it. God's obviously speaking to us. So to take heed of what he's saying. Um, have you ever had a, uh, a teacher that was so engaged with their subject that it made you really interested in the subject even though you weren't initially interested in that subject? Uh, you may be a teacher like that. Uh, you may have had that experience yourself where you just think, wow, I wasn't interested in this subject when I walked in, but you've got me. And for some of you, that might have gone on to become your thing, what you decided to then do with your life. And the reason that you could trace it back to was, I just had a teacher who loved the subject, and it seemed to come alive. Sometimes I might add that those teachers, that in the moment, it just everything seems clear, this seems fantastic. You walk out the room and you cannot remember for the life of you what it was that they were talking about. I've had teachers like that too. Now, Paul is a bit like that, not like the second sort of teacher, but like the first sort, in that he gets very enthusiastic about his subject. And sometimes he kind of goes off on one a bit. I think you can say that respectfully. In other words, it's not quite clear where the sentences start and stop, and it's kind of, it's tumbling out of him. And what's tumbling out of him is an excitement about what God's done. He's just very, very excited and wants to write down everything that is pouring into his heart and soul about what Jesus has done. And this is a bit of a passage like that. So he is very enthusiastic and God willing, uh, that will make us very enthusiastic about what he has to say as well. And what he's doing here in these few verses, and I'm reading uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, uh, if you'd like to find it, is that he is saying, this is what has happened to you, Ephesians. This is the process of the gospel having an effect in your life. As you come into contact with the gospel, this is where you were, this is what the state you were in, this is how the gospel has affected you, and this is the outflow. This is the result of hearing and absorbing and believing and living, beginning to live out the gospel. And of course, the rest of Ephesians after this point is going to expand that more and more in saying, this is how to live. In the light of what Jesus has done, go live like this. That's essentially, many of Paul's letters are like that. Go live like this. Why? Well, because of all that Jesus has done for you. And here we find in Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, really in depth, what is the gospel? What has happened to humans, men and women, as they come into contact with the risen Lord Jesus, the gospel of grace. Let's read these verses, starting at Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. It's such a gift to us. And now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and make this word live in our hearts and minds I pray you'd strengthen us because we spent time in your word this morning. Encourage us, warn us, Lord Jesus. I pray, instruct us, direct us, and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. When you approach a passage of scripture, it's really important that we ask questions of it. You shouldn't just read it and think, well, there you go. We need to make inquiries into it like you would in any kind of bit of literature that you picked up to read and sometimes the obvious questions you can think oh can I really say that it's the bible can I really ask a question like that and the first question that I would have in that vein about this passage is this Paul you're saying that we were dead just look at the person next to you do they look dead do you therefore have a problem well maybe they do Depends what you're doing last night. But he says, as for you, you were dead. And you, th- you might immediately say, but I, don't, I didn't feel very dead before I knew Jesus. And you might look at your friends who you know don't have any faith in, in Jesus. You might think, well, they don't seem very dead either. So where are you going with this, Paul? Even before we've started, you're making a huge statement. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses is going somewhere you shouldn't go. Says you're dead because you'd gone places you shouldn't go, and your sins, you'd done things you shouldn't do. You're dead. And and you well, what do you mean, Paul? And we need to ask some questions of what does he mean? Because I think uh, yeah, well, let's probe it a little bit. Let's think about three different kinds of people and wonder whether what Paul is saying can possibly be true. Firstly, uh, who's been watching the Olympics? The athletes, phenomenal athletes. Nice to see us winning some medals. Fantastic. They are physically highly tuned human beings. I think anyone think they could do any of the things they've seen? My hand is really down at this point. The, the, the snowboarders, just they seem to fly on those things. And the skiers, like, I couldn't stand up on skis, and yet they're doing things that just look incredible. So these athletes are, have given themselves to be in the best possible physical position for this moment in their lives. And Paul says, you're dead. Problem? Yeah? Yeah, a problem. 
Or we might think of, of the PhD, we might think of the, uh, uh, of the professor, we might think of someone whose mind is so highly tuned, so brilliant, they can hold a thousand concepts in the head at one time and deliver them all in a fashion which makes it all seem so obvious and clear. And Paul says, you're dead. Problem, yes, we have a problem. What do you mean, Paul? What are you talking about? Or we might, our mind might go to the personality, the the film star, the rock star, who seems to just light up the room when they walk in, the kind of who's, person whose personality arrives five minutes before they do. You know people like that, don't you? And, and you think, well, and Paul says to that person, you're dead. And we have a problem. What does he mean? What's he talking about? Clearly, he's not talking about physical death. He must be, mean something else. And Paul gives us a hint a little bit further on in the passage when he says this, that we were by nature objects of wrath. Now he's expanding his point a bit, but he says we were by nature something. And you might think, we're by nature, weren't we alive by nature? And he says, no, you were dead by nature. And then we need to push the uh, inquiry a little bit further. And we go back to the book of beginnings, back to Genesis, to find out what he means. Uh, so he, when he says by nature, we need to find out, well, what, how did this start? How did this problem uh, get introduced? And so back in Genesis 2, and even if you don't know the Bible at all, I'm sure you know something of this story. We read this, Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And this is the first time death in any concept has been introduced into the world. It's never happened before. And God says, if you do this, it's going to be terrible. Something's going to happen that you have no idea about. You're going to die. And then you notice this, of course, that Eve takes the apple and shares it with Adam, and they both eat it together, but they don't drop dead. Have you noticed that too? So what is, what's happening here? Well, we need to understand that when the Bible talks about death, it doesn't mean, mostly it doesn't mean physical death. It It's talking about something else, something, in fact, the Bible describes as much more serious, something that you described, I can't find you now, you described when you talked about the wrath of God, and that is a broken relationship. There are things the Bible says are more serious than physical death, things that we should be more concerned about than whether we're physically breathing or not. Of course, that is a fairly high concern for most of us. But the Bible says there's something more concerning, something more important even than that. And that is this idea that death is about outside of God's presence. Death is outside of his presence. When you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, they didn't drop physically dead. They did begin to die, of course, and death was introduced into the world. But what did happen immediately was they were put out of the presence of God. They were outside of the blessing of the garden that God had created They were removed from the special relationship that they had, Father and created being together for eternity. For all eternity, that was how it would have been. But it was broken, and death was introduced into the world. But the essence of it in the Bible was a broken relationship. Do you remember when Jesus went to heal the little girl? And the, the parents came and said, our daughter's very ill, can you come? And he said, I will come. But on the journey towards this house with the girl who was very ill, there were other people that he had to heal. And by the time he got there, they said, it's too late, she's dead. 
And Jesus said this, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And you might think, what a crass remark, except for someone who sees life and death in different ways than we do. Another way to understand what the Bible means when it talks about death is found in Luke 15, when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. Now again, we know this story, it's very familiar to us. We have two sons, both would be due an inheritance at some point, and the younger son, who would have got less, we learned about this the other week, didn't we, he would have got a bit less than the older, he says, I want mine now, I'm not waiting, I want it now, I want to go and I want, to, I want outside of this family, I want to go away and spend my money the way I choose. And that's what he does. He gets his share of the inheritance and off he goes. And it seems within a couple of verses, as Jesus tells the story, he has spent everything. He's wasted it all. He's got nothing to show for it. And what he's doing, he's not just feeding pigs, which of course as a Jew would have been insult on insult. He is eating their food as well. That's where it's led him. And this is what the father says when he come, the, the young son comes to his senses, runs back or back to the father. The father runs to meet him. This is what the father says. We have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive again. What he means is he was outside of the blessing. He was outside of the family relationship. He had chosen it himself, but he'd divorced himself as it were from all that he knew, from the protection of the family, from the love of the father, from the example of all those around him that would have cared and raised him to maybe spend his inheritance more wisely. But he hadn't done that. And the father said he was dead. And that's what, the, that's what it means to be dead spiritually, is to be outside of God's blessing, away from his presence. And Paul says, that's how you were. By merit of your birth as a human being, you're outside of the blessing of God. You inherited it from your forefather, Adam and Eve. You inherited it from them, that you would be outside of his presence, that you would be spiritually dead. But it doesn't leave it there. It's not, if, if this was the bad news, it's about to get worse. Because not, how could it get worse, you say? How could it be worse than being dead? Well, that, well let's see. Because it doesn't just say that you were dead... He says this, that you were actually enslaved by the prince of the power of the air. In fact, you were enslaved to sin. You were dead and enslaved. You were enslaved by doing what seemed right to you in the state you were in. You did whatever seemed right to you. And we had that described to us in that Martin Lloyd-Jones quote a bit earlier. Just look, that's what happens when you do whatever seems right to you. You get an absolute mess. That's what happens. People outside of God's care, God's love, like the son running away from the father in the story, the parable. That's what happens. It's just a mess. And people doing what seems to be right, following philosophies or following those kind of fleshly desires without any boundaries or out any moral restraint or very little, it seems. Misplaced passions, unchecked desires. That's what it's like. In Romans 12, Paul says that it's like being squeezed into a mold. You're being squeezed into a, a mold and you don't even know it's happening. Everyone ever played with Play-Doh or plasticine as a child? And you get the mold and you get the Play-Doh and you squeeze it in. And if you press it really hard, when you peel it out, it takes the shape of the mold you've pushed it into. And Paul says that's what it's like 
That's what it's like outside of God's protection, outside of a relationship with him. You just get squeezed into a mold. And when you pull it out, yep, you look exactly like that which is around you. You're enslaved. You are molded into all those things around you, not following God's pattern, his design, his desire for you. So you're dead, you're enslaved, but it gets even worse. Paul is really laying it on thick. He's describing what, what is life like outside of God. Well, it's death, it's enslavement, and finally, it's condemnation. You're dead, enslaved, and condemned. You are by nature, all of us, by nature, objects of wrath. Sin cannot go unpunished. We often think, well, I couldn't accept a God who wasn't a God of love. That, that's my God. Well, that's nice. That's good. And of course, God is love. But God also, and by the same kind of, the, the same standard, we couldn't accept a God who wasn't just. He would have to do what was right, wouldn't he? He would have to be righteous and good, make righteous decisions. And so sin would have to be punished. Can't just sweep it under the carpet. This willful act to ignore him, to run away like the son did, will be punished. And it says you are by nature objects of wrath, given over to yourselves. And Tim Keller develops that idea that Lloyd-Jones introduced in the, the quote that you read. And he says this, that punishment, condemnation, is humanity getting exactly what it wants, which is an eternity outside of God's presence. I don't need God. I don't want God in my life. I have nothing to do with him. That's exactly what you get. The, the Bible describes that as death. That's what death is. And so when you say that, and you may be in that position, I'm just warning you from Scripture, you've just embraced what the Bible describes as death. You've just embraced it if that's your attitude. You've just said, that's what I want. The Bible says death, enslavement, condemnation, follow that. In fact, so deep has humanity fallen that sometimes it's hard, as we've described, it's as if, We'd have no idea we've fallen at all. When you're inside of a culture, it's really hard to see the traits of that culture. So if you go traveling, you go visit another culture, and there are things that are immediately apparent to you. They're very different from your own experience, and things that can jump off the page, as it were. Wow, I didn't realize that they were like that. Sometimes in terms of friendliness, sometimes in terms of sense of humor, all kinds of things can happen. But from within the culture, it's really hard to see them. And so when people say about British people, oh, you're like this, you're like that, we're like, no, we're not. We're not like that at all. And why don't we see it? We don't see it because we're so in it. We are so in it, we can't even see it. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. He says that you are blinded by the world around you. You've been blinded. And in fact, blinded to the gospel. So why is it hard to preach the gospel sometimes? Why do people not see it when for us it's so obvious? That's why. That's why. Because it's as if their minds are garrisoned around against the gospel. We need to pray. We need to preach clearly. We need to live lives that demonstrate something of Jesus to break that down. But this is God's perspective on the human condition. Dead, enslaved, condemned. We need to understand that because we don't understand how deep the problem is. Then when we come to the good part, 
We come to the bit where Jesus rescues, it doesn't seem such a big deal. If sin's not really such a big deal, if it doesn't really matter, if it's well, that's, that's good, for, that's right for you or it's right for me, if there's no objective right and wrong, if there's no absolute final decision about what's good and what's bad, then the cross, well, it's a, it's a nice example of something. But it's so much more than that when we realize the depth to which humanity has fallen. You are dead. You're face down in the water. No one's coming for you. But God. But God in verse 4. It's over. It's the lights are out. The stage is dark. It's over and then Jesus comes. That's what makes it glorious. That he would come for us. That he would come for me. Why would he come for me? Well, he tells us. And what we see is a, a champion, a rescuer, a hero steps in to the stage. He steps into our story and he even tells us why in verse 4. Because of his great love for us. Because of his great love. Yes, he saw better than anyone could have ever seen with the perfect perspective exactly how far we'd fallen how enslaved we were, how separate, how dead, how deserving of punishment. But God, because of his great love, steps in. He comes and rescues us. And what does he do? He makes you alive. He makes you alive even when you were dead, enslaved, condemned. Even then, he comes and identifies with you, motivated by love. The actioning of that love is, is mercy. It's mercy. He's being merciful. We, we're, getting, we're getting grace that we don't deserve. It's wonderful. We're getting mercy where we are deserving of punishment. Instead of punishment, what do we get? Mercy. We get forgiveness. We get grace in its place. And he made us alive. He made you alive even when you were dead. So Jesus, how did he do it? He gave up his unbroken relationship, father to son, so that in becoming sin, he might win for us an inseparable relationship with his father. So the relationship that he had, father to son, for all eternity, was broken on the cross. And Jesus' cry was, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Where are you? So that he could win you. So that he came right to where you were. He came and identified fully with the human condition, taking on sin, taking on punishment, taking on separation, taking on the flesh that was so easily enslaved and won for you his own relationship perfect and unbroken so that you will never say if you're a believer you will never say why have you forsaken me you would never say where are you because he says I will be with you forever I'll be with you always we see that he comes to rescue us he comes to identify he comes to undo all that this death and separation has done so tragically in humanity and then we see he's saved us into something. He's rescued us into something. It's not just, well, that's it, it's done. No, there's so much more. And the second part 
of this passage describes something of that. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And here we find out why. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He did it. Why did he rescue you? To demonstrate, to use you as as a story to be told of the riches of his grace. He wanted to share with you his relationship with his father, this wonderful unity, this love, this incredible grace. But he didn't just want to share it with you. He wanted you to be on that mission with him too. It wasn't just, well, we'll just save them. No, I want you in. I want you in. I want you part of the plan. It's such dignity that he affords us. And in a huge challenge to any preacher, Paul says this, these riches are incomparable. So then what what do we do next? What do preachers do? They try and find something to compare it with so that we'll understand it a bit more. And he says here, it's incomparable. There's nothing like it. There's no love, there's no grace that has anything to compare to this grace and this love. So what do we have instead of a comparison? We have the ultimate example of. And we look at someone who would give himself wholly and completely. And that's how we understand grace. I didn't deserve it. I was deserving of wrath. I was guilty, I was enslaved, I was dead, and he came and did everything necessary to win me. Everything. All I did was respond to his call. And that with his grace at work in me anyway. It's incomparable love. It's incredible grace. He pours out his love and he does it again and again and again. He's doing it right now. Right now he's saying anyone anyone come to me anyone if you're weary if you've had enough if you're weary if you feel burdened if you're heavy laden come to me says Jesus I'll give you rest rest for your soul rest from the separation from God I'll give you rest he's offering it right now in this moment in the room right now you can turn to him say Jesus I I accept that's it. That's what you need to do. I believe. I, I'm in. Save me. Any one of those phrases from your heart crying to Jesus is enough. Because it's incomparable. It's incomparable. You can't compare it to anything. The riches of his grace. And then what do you become? You become a trophy of grace. You become an incredible champion of grace yourself, an example of God's grace on display. And that's what we're called to. And the letter goes on to talk about being soldiers in their army, but champions of grace. People that go and take that grace and say, it's unbelievably good. Now, I want everyone to know about this. I want to display it with a life lived loving Jesus, a life lived following him and serving him. A life we find of kindness, which is what Paul describes it as. It was kindness shown to us in Jesus. Sometimes we think of it as a, bit of a, as a bit of a weak emotion or a bit of a weak 
motivation, but Jesus' kindness leads us to repentance. So when we're kind to those around us, when we see a need and meet it, when we see someone needs a friend and we go and befriend them, see someone who just needs an arm around them, when we do that, when we display kindness, what we're doing is we're displaying something of God's kingdom. We are doing the thing that he said to do, showing some of those incomparable riches of his grace. And then at the end of the passage, in verse 10, we find that you are now his handiwork. You've been made in his hands, been pulled back into his family, back in to the father's household. And now you get to demonstrate God's goodness. Because of all those things, because of all of that, now comes the motivation to do something. Not right at the beginning where we think it should be. Somehow God, please God, and if I please him, maybe I'll get something from him. No, it's right at the end here. After all that Jesus has done, how he's given himself, he's died, he's risen back to life, he's drawn you in, he's saved you, and now he says, and now go and demonstrate God's love to everyone around you. How? He says, well, there are things I've prepared for you to do. And again, we have to look at God's omnipotence, his incredible power. It says that he's created, that he has given, uh, put good works in advance for you to do, ready for you. So this week, there's stuff for you to do. There's, there's ways that you can demonstrate God's grace and love. There's stuff ahead of you. There's, it's like as you walk through this week, as the days pass, ahead of you, you're going to stumble into something. and Oh, here's, here's something. Here's something for me to do to demonstrate something of God's love. When we demonstrate grace, when we demonstrate care, when we do the right thing, when we demonstrate righteousness and goodness, we are displaying his kingdom for all to see. And so what Paul does, he brings us full circle in these few verses. He starts with being dead in transgressions and sins. We're caught in these actions. We don't seem to be able to do anything about it. In fact, we don't even know it's happening, but we're trapped in them with all that goes with it. And at the end of the passage in verse 9, what we find is now we find goodness flowing out of this relationship with God, demonstrating his love and grace. Should we stand together? Father, we thank you that although we were deserving of punishment, that you were merciful. We thank you, Jesus, that although we didn't have any, there was no way we could access your grace. You have lavished it on us. Thank you for this love expressed in kindness through Jesus to come and find us, to rescue us. Come and give us what we don't deserve. Come to embrace us and say, my son was dead and now he's alive. And I pray, Lord Jesus, my prayer now for anyone who doesn't know that, who's never known the Father's embrace like that, just that welcoming back into the family home, back home, never to be alone. I pray right now that that would be their experience. I pray they'd come to faith right now. In Jesus' name. Amen.